the God in heaven. God, we look to you today, not just as the creator, but also as our redeemer and the one who restores us. As we look at this passage today from Matthew 13 and 14, I pray that you will open our hearts. And God, that you will see that, that as, as people, even Jesus Christ in Scripture, have been rejected, so are we. But God, you help us through this. And I do ask that you will guide us today, that you will lead us. I pray that you will use me, Father. Use, allow your Holy Spirit to speak through me. Father, help me to communicate the message that you intended to communicate initially through Pastor Chris, but now have asked me to do. I thank you for this, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I will have a disclaimer right up front. I'm going to be reading a lot of this, and I hope that's not distracting for you this morning. But if we were to open up our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis, we would find very early on that, that there's a beautiful, unifying, and exciting relationship between one man and one woman. And with that, there, there was no such thing as pain, there was no turmoil, there was no heartache, and there was no rejection. Yet we also see that very quickly this turns because the first man, the first woman, Adam and Eve, wanted to do things their own way. They, they, they walked away from what God had created and what he had declared as very good and decided to follow their own paths. And that's when sin entered the world. And in their determination to carve out their own path, what we see is we see that they experience pain, turmoil, brokenness, heartache, and rejection, and that even continues today. We see the aspect of rejection throughout the entire storyline of the Bible. Think of Abel, who was rejected by Cain. Noah, who was rejected by, well, just about everybody. Abraham was rejected by Lot. Isaac was rejected by his son. Jacob was rejected by his brother and his father-in-law. Joseph was rejected by his brothers, by his boss, and also by those he tried to help. Moses was rejected by his family and his nation and ultimately by the Israelites whom he tried to help. Samson was rejected by his wife. Samuel was rejected by Saul. David was rejected by his own son and also his nation. Elijah was rejected by the king and his wife. And all the prophets were rejected by the nation of Israel. And even the disciples were rejected by society and they were, even, they were either martyred or they were banished. And Jesus himself was rejected by humanity and continues to be rejected today. I think it's fair to say that every one of us here in the room and even those watching online, we've been rejected as well. And it's also fair to say that we will likely experience that at some point in the future. And that's a terrible feeling when we're rejected. And it can be even more so when we're rejected by our family and by our friends. But the Bible is not silent on this aspect. Earlier in the, in the chapter of Matthew 13, Jesus introduces some parables, or Matthew introduces some parables that Jesus taught. And, and if we were to look at them, we would see that rejection is either referenced in or inferred by each of these parables as well. Jesus says that some people will look like a promising seed and a sprout out of the ground that is going to bear fruit, but yet they end up having no life. And if they do sprout, they're actually just weeds. 
There will appear to be those who are for Jesus and even for you. But what we see is that they will not only turn away from Jesus, they will turn away from us seeking the comforts of the world, seeking self-righteousness or even financial gain. And Jesus knows this firsthand because he also experienced rejection. At this point, we know that Jesus has been rejected by the king. He was rejected by the religious elite of that day. He was rejected by his own family and his friends. And eventually he would even be rejected by the disciples. And we will also take a look at briefly this morning how Jesus will end up alone even as God the Father turned his back and rejected him while he hung on the cross. But yet Jesus did that to save you and to save me by giving us eternal life so that we will never ultimately be rejected by God the Father. So there are three things we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the harsh reality of rejection. We're going to look at the possible reasons for rejection. And finally, we'll look at the incredible hope in rejection. So first of all, the harsh reality of rejection. We see that, that rejection from, comes from family and from friends. The end of chapter 13 tells us that Jesus has gone back to his hometown in Nazareth. His mom is there. His brothers and sisters are there. He ran into friends that likely he, I shouldn't say likely, possibly he skipped rocks with along the water, maybe went fishing with, maybe even people he worked with. But when he arrived there in the local synagogue, and the synagogue was actually the center of life at that time in Israel, he was not met with a banner or a parade for a hometown, but again, these are Chris's notes here. Um, he was treated maybe like LeBron James leaving Cleveland for Miami. I told Chris when we talked briefly yesterday, I said, you realize that they reject this. They're really not rejecting me. They're rejecting your interpretation, but I digress here. So Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus walked to the front of the room when he went into the synagogue and he read from the book of Isaiah. And they were confused as to what Jesus was doing because when he read the passage, he then sat down and he said the he was the fulfillment of the text. Let's look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes in all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today... Of this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, Jesus was offering to them not ultimately physical, social, medical, or political salvation. He was offering them soul salvation, S-O-U-L, soul salvation. In fact, this is what Satan had tempted Jesus to do, and the temptation was real. See, Satan wanted Jesus to bypass the, bypass the cross and usher in a political kingdom but that's not what Jesus was there for. Jesus at that point in time had the power to do those things, but his mission was to seek and to save the lost. 
And Jesus knew what these people really needed, but what they really needed, they didn't want. To them, Jesus looked unimpressive. He had a less than flattering resume, and on top of all that, they knew him. They felt the need, they needed something more than freedom from sin. They needed freedom from the Romans. They needed freedom from sin, or I'm sorry, freedom from disease and freedom from their daily problems. But what they didn't realize is that Jesus just offered them political and physical salvation, that it would really not be any freedom at all. A quote by Malcolm Muggeridge says, all of our freedoms once won soon turn into new servitude. Christ is the only liberator whose liberation lasts forever. Jesus was offering these people true freedom, and he offers that to us today. Freedom to be who God made them to be. He was offering them a return basically to the Garden of Eden, to a place of restoration back with God, their creator of freedom, where they could now know and love God and be truly themselves and be healed from the mound of rejection they had experienced and that they would experience throughout their life. He was offering the opportunity for them to stop covering up their sin and their shame with the fig leaves of self-righteousness and to be truly free. You see, without freedom in Christ, you will never be free and you will never find who God made you to be. If you've ever seen the play Death of a Salesman, you know the character Willie Loman. And we see here as a picture of this in Willie Loman's life, success in business was of the highest importance to him. But the rejection and turmoil was so much that he ends up committing suicide. At the funeral, his son was speaking to his friend Charles. And he says, there are a lot of nice days. We'd come home from a trip or on Sundays making the porch, finishing the cellar. Even when he built the extra bedroom and put up the garage, you know something, Charles? There's more of him in that front porch than in all of those sales he ever made. In other words, Dad was really himself in those wonderful moments when he forgot his success fixation and his pains of rejection. And he ends with saying that he never knew who he was. Charles and the man didn't know who he was. My friends, you will never find your true self, your real identity, until you come all the way fully to Jesus Christ. If you don't spend your whole life putting on fig leaves after every rejection and experience. And rejection, when it comes from family and friends, it really hurts more than any other kind of rejection, doesn't it? But when that happens, if you try to suppress that pain or to cover it up, you simply remain lost. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that offers us a place of healing, of hope, and identity. It's a place to be transparent and honest, and God offers anyone who will listen sympathy and healing. Next, we see rejection from culture and government. In the beginning of chapter 14, we run into John the Baptist, and also we run into Herod. Matthew, the writer of this account of the gospel, is bringing us up to speed as to what happened really about a year ago, uh, a year prior to this time that he's 
from this. And, and Jesus, while Jesus faced rejection from family and friends, John the Baptist faced it from the culture and from the government. And in this story, again, we run into Herod, who's not only the rejecter, but ultimately the executioner of John the Baptist. A little bit of background on Herod. His, his father was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the ruler at the time that Jesus was born and the one that commanded that the children of Israel under the age of two be killed. Herod the Great is the, re, is, or is, is the person that the Magi visited before they came to find the Christ child, but the angel told them not to go back to him, but rather to go a different way. And also Herod the Great was the reason that Joseph took Mary and Jesus out of Bethlehem into Egypt because of that threat. So that's who his dad was. He also had a few brothers. I actually had many brothers, but uh, they were from different wives. And uh, two other brothers that were also leaders. So while, while Herod the Great had these three sons, and, and this Herod in our story is Herod Antipas is the, is the Herod in our story. And he was the one who basically had the rule over Galilee where Jesus and John spent most of their ministry. But Herod Antipas had two other brother, half-brothers, Archelaus, who ruled over Judea and Samaria, and Philip, who ruled over the northern territory, territory of Iturea. But as Matthew tells us, that when this Herod Antipas hears about Jesus, he gives us the impression that he's actually confused and a little bit concerned. And the reason for that is because Herod knew that about a year prior to this, he had John beheaded. And what's interesting about that is that John, John was thinking, and even Matthew even records here, that he, Herod even states that this is John the Baptist. He has been risen from the dead. One of the interesting points of that is that Herod actually sided more with the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. So it's interesting that he had that thought. And then we also meet Herodias. Herodias was at this time the wife of Herod, but she was also the granddaughter of Herod the Great. And this story gets very much intertwined. It reminds me of an issue of Dateline where I can just hear Keith Morrison in his voice peeling back the layers of the different components of the story. And we see here that, that Herodias had actually been married to Herod's half-brother, Philip. And Herod had been married before as well. He had been married to the daughter of a king of a, of a country that, outside of the nation of Israel and actually outside of the kingdom of Rome, and there was, some constant, or there was some conflict there. And at some point, when Herod had met Herodias, they at some point hooked up. And Herodias divorced Philip, and Herod divorced his first wife and sent her back home, which will come back to that, which would ultimately lead to, or one of the things that would lead to Herod's demise. But Herodias also had a daughter, and, and we see the daughter in this picture as well. So, so the, the daughter would have been the, the child of Philip and Herodias and the stepdaughter of Herod. But what we see here is that... It, so not only is... So peeling back the layers here again a little bit more. Herodias is not only Herod's ex-sister-in-law, but it's also his niece because she's the granddaughter of his dad. Again, this, this is just so interwined and so disgusting, if you will, from that aspect <laughs> that it's not hard to see how sin continues to creep down and drive people to do the things that they do. So after Herodias and Herod got married, they left their spouses. 
And then John the Baptist, when he enters the scene, he calls them out on this. Because John knows that Herod is a leader in Israel. And he should be setting a good example and not the example that he's setting. So he's calling them out in public for their marriage, which is a sinful marriage. And so while Herod, Mark, the, the, the gospel of Mark tells us that Herod actually likes to listen to John. He's a little confused by it. He's a little afraid of it. But he's also intrigued by it at the same time. So Herod liked to listen to what John had to say. Herodias did not. And so we see this, that, that what comes into play is that they have him put in prison, actually put in the basement of, their, of the palace, of the fortress where they're staying. And so John felt the rejection, not just of the leaders here, but, but think about what John might have been thinking. He, he was doing what God had called him to do, right? He was calling out sin and asking people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is a hand. And yet what happens to him is he ends up in prison, so it was likely that, that John felt the rejection, not just of the leaders, but also possibly of God. But yet, John and even Jesus knew what it's like to be rejected and at that painful reality of re that rejection. There'll be times in our lives where people that we love will propel you to tell them the truth that they don't want to hear. And that may cause you to face their wrath and their rejection as well. And there will be times in life where your following of Jesus won't coincide with what the demands of the culture are. And we see that today. And you'll be considered an outcast. But know that, that Jesus faced these things and that we're not alone. Point number two, the possible reasons for rejection. The last two verses of chapter 13 says, And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of his unbelief. If you look at the account of the Gospels and you see whenever someone is scandalized or offended by someone, again, as it's recorded in the Gospels, the person's always Jesus. He was an equal opportunity offender, so to speak. Yet when you read what he said, you realize that nothing that he said ever fell short. It was true. He was always spot on and he liked and often left people speechless. But then consider the works that he did. He cared for those who were cast aside. He healed the sick. He welcomed strangers. And he even raised the dead. But his own family and friends rejected him. Why? Why would they reject him? See, they felt that they knew him and they had him boxed into their own hometown category. He didn't belong with those higher-ups from the government or those higher-ups in the religious hierarchy. He was a commoner. He was a villager. He was one of them, if you will. And in view of his family connections, they were likely reasoning that his rightful place, Jesus' rightful place, was back in the community with them, doing the things that villagers or commoners did. And for Jesus, that would have been swinging the hammer, doing carpentry work. And likely, his family members, apologize for my glasses, I shouldn't have bought progressive lenses. They keep wanting to self-correct to the right. Some of you will get that here in a minute. 
likely they might have been thinking to themselves, who does Jesus think that he is? So because Jesus did not fit their categories, they rejected him. They were afraid of him because of what they didn't know. He had grown up with them. There's no way that he could be different for them, from them. Was this the man who made the furniture and amended their plows? Was this the little boy who grew up in the synagogue school taught by the local rabbi? They had never heard teaching like this before, however. But how dare he color outside the lines? How dare he proclaim something that we had not heard before? And how dare he make himself to be God? You see, they had preconceived ideas of who God was, and this wasn't it. Jesus didn't soften the blow with his words. He was straight up telling them the truth. He would say that to follow him, they would have to be converted. And in order to convert, they would have to repent of their self-righteousness. They would have to do basically as Paul tells us to do in Philippians chapter 3 and count it all loss. Jesus had called them to follow him and follow him alone. The irony is that their presumption and pride is what caused them to see Jesus as presumptuous and prideful. But why wouldn't they at least consider Jesus' claims as God and Messiah? It's because at the core of their being, they, there was a moralist identity. And those who rely and bank on their own morality to find an identity, to feel worth, to score points with God, they can't have other people who are just like them showing them up morally and spiritually. And that's actually why Luke records in his account of the gospel that these people actually eventually tried to run him off a cliff. You see, these people needed to be on top. Their whole reputation was that they were banking on, was the reputation they were banking on to give them street cred, to give them respect in the culture. And while they used morality to find an identity and build credibility, as many of us even do today, we also find other uses of immorality and materialism or success or money or identity to build credibility. It's all the same heart issue. It's no different today for us. Bottom line is that because they rejected the gospel, they rejected finding an identity in grace, they had to reject Jesus. They had no choice because he was the curve breaker. So think back to your days in school. You walk out of class taking the test and thinking, man, I just bombed that test. And then you hear the teacher say or the professor say, we're going to be grading this on a curve. Hallelujah. The problem is there's always somebody in the class who actually studied for or studied more than you did. Well, studied more than I did. I'm married to one of them, by the way. And when, when all of us who score in the 40s and 50 on a test and we hear there's a curve, we're thinking, great, until we find out the person who actually did all the prep work scored 100 on the test. So much for the curve. It's hard to like a curve breaker, right? Because we're wanting to be compared to our standard, Right? We're wanting to be compared to what we produce, to what we do. Not what the ultimate standard is. And see, that's what Jesus is. As the ultimate standard, Jesus is the curve breaker. 
And that's what these people rejected from him. The outcasts of society loved Jesus because he paid attention to them. But those who held seats of honor and seats of power, they despised him. And really, if any group of people at this time when Jesus was on the earth should have been the one throwing their hats in the air celebrating him, it was the religious elite. The religious elite. But instead, they tried to kill him. And eventually, they did. See, these were the holy ones of the day. The ones voted most likely to be accepted at the life graduation. Yet Jesus called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs. And he called them a brood of vipers. Their resentment towards Jesus likely began as just petty annoyance. They were irritated by him and by what he was teaching. And then it moved to a smoldering rage. And ultimately, it ended up in them a vehement, in their vehement demands for his death. They simply could not tolerate Jesus because he showed them up. This hometown boy who was supposed to be a carpenter by trade, he was the curve breaker, and he, they did not like that. See, they thought they had God figured out. They thought that God was on their side. And they thought that as long as they were doing the things they were doing, that was good enough. But then along comes Jesus, the standard, that curve breaker, and shows that that's not the case. See, Jesus offers to take our brokenness and mend it with his life and his death and to bring us to God. This hometown boy and the crowd of Nazareth See, they would, the hometown crowd, I should say, the hometown crowd of Nazareth would likely have been happy if they could have just accepted Jesus as their assistant. If, the, if he just offered them a little nudge in the right direction, offered them a little help. But he was basically telling them, they, not basically, he was telling them they were poor in spirit. He was telling them they were spiritually bankrupt. And he was telling them that he had come to save them. As God, Jesus could not have it any other way. What about you? Can you handle Jesus and his claims on your life? Think about this example of the assistant. This quote from Elizabeth Elliot. Think about this. If the distance between the earth and the sun was of the thickness of one sheet of paper, then the distance from the earth to the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. Our galaxy is only a speck of dust in the universe. And if there is a person who holds all of that together by the word of his power, is this the kind of person that you would ask into your life to be your personal assistant? We see here that this visit to Nazareth was the last time that Jesus would appear there. He went away and obviously did not return again. Isaiah chapter 53 comes, is fulfilled in this passage where it's describing Jesus, says that he was despised and rejected by men, that he was a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And know that as a Christian, that we, you, will we face rejection in your life as well. 
And sometimes it'll come from those who seem to have it all together. Those who are highly moral. Those who are the most religious. Those who can quote the most Bible verses. People will have you pinned down and in a category, but when God does greater things in your life than what they expect, or God changes you and shows them up, they might just reject you. Realize that it happened to Jesus, and as long as you cling to the gospel, stay humble, and find your identity in grace, you have the ability to keep pressing on. Another possible reason for rejection is offended people. It's because when people get offended by our belief in Scripture or our lovingly calling them out of their sin, this is what we see happen to John the Baptist. Let me read here from Matthew 14, starting in verse 6. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body away and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. So again, a little bit more details about this story is we are used to, in our culture, celebrating birthdays. But not so in the Jewish culture. So it was out of the Jew- outside the Jewish culture that that. Herod was having this party and more in line with the Greek customs, primarily because Herod was more of a Hellenist than a Jew. But he celebrated his birthday with a lot of gusto, if you will. And likely it would, it would have been expected that there would have been dancing at this party, but normally that would have been done by dancers who would have been paid, who would have been brought in to dance and to please the crowd, so to speak. But keep in mind who this crowd would have been. Herod was doing this for political reasons, to have his birthday party. He gathered together military commanders. He gathered together nobles, other people of nobility. And he gathered other prominent leaders in the area of Galilee. And very likely, this group was all men, except for maybe the servants that had come in to serve the food. And here's Herodias' daughter doing the performing or doing the dancing. Now, while this could have been, oh, see what my stepdaughter can do, kind of a scenario. It was very likely that the context in this passage and also in Mark is more of a context of this, this dance was more provocative. It was suggestive or seductive is probably the best word to use for that. And again, thinking at the depraved mind here, this pleased not just Herod but the crowd. And the fact that this was a girl in young to mid-teens, that's pretty disgusting if you think about it. But what we also see here, though, is that upon the request of Herodias' daughter to bring me here, meaning in front of all these people, because you promised this, I want you to bring here the head of John the Baptist on a platter. See, this was very likely something that had been thought about and planned by Herodias because Again, 
John had been calling her and Herod out for their sin. And while John tolerated, I'm sorry, while Herod tolerated John and was intrigued by what he was saying, probably not that part, but other things that John had said, Herodias was not, and she never appreciated what John said. And this was her opportunity to ultimately reject the man who was basically casting stones at her by saying that what she had done was sinful. So when Herod hears this request, says he was stricken with grief or he was sorry. And John was actually lovingly calling out the sin of two people. Saying, hey, you shouldn't do that. I'm sure there were probably more words that John used and he was probably more forceful with that. But ultimately he was trying to be kind by telling them, you're in sin and you need to stop. But Herodias was offended. And while Herod had the opportunity to step in and do what was right and receive John's rebuke, instead he closed the door and granted the wish or the command of his stepdaughter. Likely because Herod had made this oath and all his guests heard it, and Herod was a prideful politician. So he had John beheaded. Now it was, first of all, against the Jewish law to execute someone without a trial. And it was also against the Jewish custom, or not with the Jewish custom, I should say, to execute someone by beheading. But by this point, Herod's heart was so hard that he didn't care. He just wanted this man's silence. He wanted his pride intact. And he wanted to fulfill the oath as sinful and as evil as it was. You see, as, as a friend, as a real friend, we need to say hard things to people sometimes. And even though we may be gracious, the truth still hurts and it can get rejected. But love compels us to say these things anyway. Proverbs chapter 27 states, Better is, an, is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Again, remember that if you get rejected for tell the people, for trying to tell someone the truth, please be sure they're offended by the truth and not by your delivery. Okay? We've likely had this happen to us and maybe we've even done it. Probably should change that around. We've likely done this and maybe even happened to us that when someone is rebuking us, we're rebuking someone, we do it in a way that may not be love. But remember that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Not just truth, grace and truth. And you see, we need both. We can't ignore what is hurting someone else. We have to call it out. Yes, we need to be patient. Yes, we need to be gracious. Yes, we don't need to call out everything. And yes, we need to examine our own life. But don't let any of that be an excuse to keep quiet. You see, love compels you to say something to that person. Don't gossip about it, right? Don't go to the prayer meeting and say, got a prayer request for Steve. You'll never believe what he's doing, right? That's gossip. Don't condemn the person and treat them like an outcast. 
Love them and lovingly tell them the truth, even if you get rejected for it. I like the phrase, hate the sinner, love the sin. No, 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 no. That's wrong, right? Hate the sin, love the sinner, right? Or hate the game, not the player. Point number three, the incredible hope and rejection. As we've seen this morning that both Jesus and John the Baptist face intense rejection. You might be thinking, well, what about Herod and Herodias? Did they face the consequences of rejecting John? Yes, they did. Sadly, the hardness of their hearts only increased. And while Herod was early on interested in what John had to say, we know that later in the gospel accounts that Herod actually gets to meet Jesus face to face at his trial. But Jesus mocks, no, no, Herod mocks Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Doesn't say a word. In the end, things did not work out for Herod. It was a few years later that his half-brother Agrippa, who from Acts 12 fame, he had been appointed, appointed by Rome as king over an area where Philip, again, Herod, Herod's half-brother and Herodias' first husband, was over. And after he died, Agrippa was made charge over that. But Herodias felt that Herod should have been given that, so she was trying to make that happen. But they were both betrayed by Agrippa. And Herod was ultimately accused of and charged with committing treason. And he was deposed and banished, he and Herodias both, to a deserted place where eventually they both died. Proverbs chapter 5 says, His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. He will die for lack of self-control, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. You see, Herod's rejection of John and of Jesus was not ignored by God. Peter would tell us in his letter that when Jesus was on the cross, he endured because he considered him being God to judge justly. God the Father judges justly. And Jesus knew that every wrong would be made right. And Jesus knew that no sin would be swept under the cosmic rug of the universe because Jesus knew that he was on the cross to take the punishment for the sins of the world. And Jesus knew that God would be faithful in accepting his sacrifice for everyone. And many times, God will let us turn ourselves and our face to our own consequences. And as we see with Herod, who was the rejecter, ultimately in the end became rejected. Augustine says, many times the punishment for sin is sin. So think of the contrast between Herod and Jesus here as we get ready to close. Herod did what those people in power do. They try to keep hold of it. But in the end, he lost it. And he died unknown, unseen, and unacknowledged. But Jesus laid his power aside to die for people, for his people. And today he rules in glory and will rule forever. He will be known, he will be seen, and he will be acknowledged with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, Herod was a petty king, but he looked good. He looked kingly. Jesus is the king of kings, but when he was here on this worth as 100% God and 100% man, when he appeared here in the days of his flesh, he was a humble Galilean peasant who couldn't even get the respect of his family and his friends. And in the end, the rejection of family and friends and religious leaders and kings and governors for Jesus was like a flea bite compared to the rejection in his soul that he faced for becoming our sin on the cross. In the end, Jesus faced the ultimate rejection, rejection from God the Father. And that's why he shouted, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you rejected me? Robert McShane says, He was without any comforts of God, no feeling that God loved him, no feeling that God pitied him, no feeling that God supported him. God was his son before. Now that son became all darkness. Not a smile from his father, not a kind look, not a kind word. All that God had been to him before was taken from him now. He had the feeling of the condemned, when the judge says, Depart from me, ye cursed, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He felt that God said the same to him. Ah, this is the hell which Christ suffered. Dear friends, I feel a little child, cast, like a little child casting a stone into some deep ravine in the mountainside and listening to hear its fall but listening all in vain. It is too deep. The ocean of Christ's sufferings is unfathomable. He was forsaken in the place of sinners. If you run to him as your refuge, you will never be forsaken. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For me, for me, the ocean of Christ's sufferings is unfathomable. If you're here this morning, I don't know if you are the rejecter or if you are the rejected. And maybe in some situations, you're both. But unfortunately, we find ourselves in life being or at least feeling a little bit of both at times. And if you come today with a hard heart, having been called out by those who love you, that you feel rejected by them for telling you the truth, please consider again that maybe it was love for you that compelled them to speak that. Maybe they didn't do a good job of presenting it to you. But maybe their words were meant in love. Before taking communion today, I ask that you take inventory of your offended heart. Are you listening to Jesus? Are you teachable? Is there something that God might be pricking your heart about this morning? Something maybe that you need to repent of. If you're the rejected and you're a follower of Jesus, know that Jesus has healed you and made sure that your ultimate rejection will never take place. God will never reject us for those who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Rejection is not the way it's supposed to be and what you feel right now is going away. 
There's coming a day because of our Savior where the feeling and pain of rejection will be long gone as we will be received by our God and loved by our God all because of Jesus. As you consider your rejection, consider Jesus and consider Jesus' final hope. As we go to communion this morning, again, I ask you to take some time to think about this. Hopefully I've not been a distraction for you today. Hopefully I've articulated not so much what Chris wanted to communicate to you this morning, but what the Holy Spirit wanted you to hear. Maybe you've been rejected. Maybe you've rejected someone. Think about that. And as we take time for communion this morning, the cups are there in the pews for you. Uh, We'll have some time of silence. Okay, and then we'll come back together as a corporate body here in just a moment. Let me pray. God in heaven, we love you. We thank you that you allowed your son to be rejected. God, I ask forgiveness for rejecting him initially, but I thank you that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you've allowed me to see, to see that he is your son, to see that he is the Savior to see that his death on the cross was so that I could have fellowship with you, that my fellowship could be restored with you now and in eternity to come. Father, help us to use these words today. Help us to be challenged by the fact that maybe there's someone that we need to confront. Help us to do it lovingly. Help us to do it in a way that is pleasing to you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will prepare our hearts for that and also the heart of the individual to whom we are speaking, that we will speak in grace and truth. I pray this in Jesus' name.